We continue in our series on 1 Corinthians, specifically in this section of it in which we are talking about human sexuality. Extraordinarily difficult and controverted topic, especially right now and in the Episcopal Church. The goal for this series, for this portion of the 1 Corinthians series, as I said last week, is to make you uncomfortable, to make you uneasy. Not just because I would like some company, but because I think for us to deal as charitably and as graciously as we can with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be able to understand the way that people who differ from us read these passages and understand the ethics of human sexuality. I think we need to be able to look anew at the way we read Scripture, to understand the reasons why we have come to the conclusions that we have come to, to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of all of these different ways of seeing it. You may well come through this time as convinced as ever that you have come to the right understanding of these passages and of this issue. But if you do so, I hope it will be with a greater awareness of the diversity of understanding among Christians and a greater ability to preserve the unity of the church. Today, I will not be talking about things that are particularly controversial. Today, I want to establish two firm sidelines for our conversation. I want to establish the field of play, so to speak, the ideas about sexuality that we will not be engaging because I don't think that they are helpful in building a functioning Christian ethic of sexuality and that they are faithful to Scripture. The first is the idea that sex is always bad. Probably the most well-known proponent of this was Blessed St. Augustine. And even he admitted that marital sex could be a good and noble thing, but that it should not in any way, he believed, be informed by sexual desire. He put it this way, speaking of the situation in Eden before the fall of humankind. He said, God forbid that we should suppose that it was impossible for the seed of offspring to be sown without unwholesome lust. Rather, the sexual organs would have been moved by the same command of the will as the other members are. Then, not needing to be aroused by the excitement of passion, the man would have poured his seed into his wife's womb in tranquility of mind and without any corruption of her body's integrity. Although this cannot be proved by experience, there is no reason for us not to believe that when those parts of the body were not driven by turbulent heat, but brought into use by the power of the will when the need arose, the male seed could have been introduced into the womb with no loss of the wife's integrity, just as the flow of menstrual blood can now come forth from the womb of a virgin without any such loss of integrity, just as the woman's womb might have been opened for birth simply by the influence of the maturity of the fetus and without any means of pain. So the two sexes might have been conjoined for the purpose of impregnation, and conception by a natural use of the will 
and not by lustful appetite. Let's go back and remember what we find in Genesis about the situation in Eden. Chapter 1 of Genesis, we read that God created everything and called it good, and then he created humanity. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he called both the man and humanity very good. God has created us, each of us individually, as a very good part of his creation. And it is very good, he says, this human race that I have made. But then in chapter 2, he says something is not good. It is not good, he said, for the man to be alone. And so he made for him a suitable counterpart, a partner. So Yahweh, God, as the story goes, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then Yahweh, God, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man And he brought her to the man. And the man said, Behold, this is one in whom I can pour out my seed in tranquility of mind and without any corruption of her body's integrity. Behold, this is one with whom I might be conjoined for the purpose of impregnation and conception by a natural use of the will and not by lustful appetite. Not exactly. No. What Adam says when he sees Eve is, whoa, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, the writer of Genesis says, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife so that strictly by the rational exercise of will he might propagate the species. No, it doesn't say that either. It says he will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, be united to her, and they will become one flesh. This is all before the fall of humankind. This is the situation as God created it good. And whether you understand this to be a literal account of the first two literal people or to be a story about the nature of humanity that is common to all of us, the point is that the idea that we are sexual beings is not something that came about because of sin. Our nature as sexual beings is part of God's design for all of us. God was not shocked and horrified at what Adam and Eve started doing. That was exactly what he had designed. And even Augustine recognizes there seems to be a sense in which the two have been created in a complementary way. Now we should be gracious to Augustine. Augustine himself had a very wild youth. He's the one who prayed, Lord, make me holy, but not just yet. And it may be that he overreacted in embracing the guilt of his own sexual sin as a youth. The fact is, human sexuality is not 
a bug. It is a feature. God, in fact, in his holy word, has given us an entire book of the Bible that's all about sex, passionate sex. It's all about people who are in an aroused state before or after or during. That book is the Song of Songs. Now, it may be useful for people who are celibate monks to read that as being a metaphor for Christ and his church. But in its initial inspiration, that does not seem to be what anybody thought it was. So we need to clearly lay out one sideline that excludes the idea that sex is always bad. But we also need to lay out the sideline that says that sex is always good. That there is nothing that we can do sexually that is inherently sinful. That is inherently wrong. The fact is, God does change sexual orientation. All of our desires are misoriented. Every single one of us has sexual desires that are skew that are off from true north. God is able by his grace and gradually to change those desires. We won't experience that in full, this side of glory, but he is able by the power of his Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of his Son. But the fact is that for now, we all are misoriented. Some of us are oriented toward sexual sin that is especially impressive, especially illegal, especially destructive. Some of us are oriented to sexual sin that can be expressed in ways that nobody else needs to know about. But we are all oriented toward sexual sin, each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is a pervert because all of our desires are perverted from what God's best for us is. This is not, I I repeat, an eternal state of affairs. A time will come when all of our desires are entirely purified. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, those broken parts of who we are are healed. Often the scars that are left behind are deep, but we are healed. That only works, though, if we recognize that we need a doctor. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, in your rich mercy, you have poured out your own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we confess that we are in need of your forgiveness. In regard to our sexuality, even as we are in need of your forgiveness in every other aspect of our life, we confess that there is nothing about the way we think about sex that is entirely pure, but that we are in constant need of your grace. We pray that as we grow into your likeness, by the power of your Spirit, 
that you would transform us to live lives that honor and glorify you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.